Welcome to Realty Talk, the show that brings together the country's most authoritative and respected property experts. Follow us on all the socials and subscribe for updates and exclusive offers. Realty Talk is powered by realty.com.au, connecting buyers, sellers and agents differently. Greetings and welcome to Realty Talk, your trusted voice for all things property, which is now proudly a part of the new and expanded Property Hub your home for property investment insights, inspiration and stories from Australia's top property experts, investors, leaders and analysts, which is done in collaboration with Apiro Marketing and DM Media, which is Australia's largest independent podcast network. I'm Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance, and we've got more great information to share with you this week. To kick things off, pressure continues to build on the Queensland Government to axe their new land tax and Nicola McDougall, who's the chair of PIPA, which is short for the Property Investment Professionals of Australia, joins us to add fuel to the fire. And while we're on the subject, I really want to encourage you to add your voice to the call to repeal this ill-considered legislation by taking a quick minute to jump on Google search and typing in petition to reverse interstate properties land tax. Then just click on the change.org link. And in less than a minute, you've added your weight to this very serious cause. Now, as the bank of mum and dad is now Australia's ninth largest lender, investing with family is becoming much more commonplace. So Helen Baker from On Your Own Two Feet shares her tips on the pros and cons of what we've decided to call fan investing. And to close off the show, securing a property can be challenging if you don't have the cash deposit on hand. So Grant Bailey from Deposit Assure opens our eyes to the opportunities with deposit bonds. And before we get into it, make sure you don't miss another episode of Realty Talk by subscribing to Property Hub on your favourite podcast player, where you'll get two powerful episodes of Realty Talk as well as the Get Invested podcast delivered to you each and every week. And make sure that you also sign up on the realty.com.au homepage where you'll get a free copy of my award-winning book, Get Invested, just for making the effort. We've got more great property gold to share with you. So let's get on with the show. Greetings and welcome. Now, as we mentioned recently here on Realty Talk, the Queensland State Labor Government has recently instituted major changes to land tax that are likely to slug interstate landlords and retirees who own investment property with potentially tens of thousands of dollars more in land tax from the middle of next year. In response, the Real Estate Institute of Queensland recently reported that property investors are tired of being the ATM for the Queensland government. And this double tax grab is likely to have a detrimental impact on the appeal of investing in Queensland. So to dig in deeper to the details and the likely impacts of this short-sighted money-grabbing political move, we're joined by Nicola McDougall, the chair of the Property Investment Professionals of Australia, affectionately referred to as PIPA. So welcome back to the show, Nicola. Hi, Bushy. Thanks for having me on to talk about this schmozzle. Yes, uh, never ceases to amaze me that uh, everyone jumps on the bandwagon at the last minute and comes up with half-baked schemes and, oh, and reactive ideas. But uh, sort of dig in, dig into this one. Uh, can you sort of talk us through what changes have the actual Queensland government legislated in relation to the mm. land tax treatment? It's interesting, Bushy, because the policy came out in December, I believe, 2021. And I remember at the time, you know, there was a bit of noise about it, but it was just so ridiculous that, you know, we didn't really 
I just thought that there was no way that it would ever see the light of day. Um, so the policy is a first of its kind, because it's that not clever, um, is that um, anybody who owns property in Queensland, you don't have to be living in Queensland. So if you own a property in Queensland and you breach the land tax threshold here in Queensland, they will also take into consideration the value of your other real estate holdings in other states and territories um, to um, calculate your total land tax bill here in Queensland. And obviously this means, um, A, that they think it's completely in their right to tax properties that are outside their legal jurisdictions, uh, but B, um, that people that were never, you know, had never had to pay ta land tax before um, may be paying land tax for the first time and certainly will probably be paying a huge uh, increase in land tax. And some people may be paying double tax on the same property. Mm, interesting. Are you able to give us a bit of an example of you know, what the land tax cost increases are going to look like? What's hilarious, Bushy, I think um, obviously over the, over the last few weeks, there has been a concerted uh, and not necessarily coordinated campaign uh, from uh, various stakeholders and industry bodies such as ourselves and the REIQ um, to point out, well, to, to point out um, the legislation to people that it may affect. Um, one of the, I actually recently sat down with the Queensland Shadow Treasurer to discuss this because what had happened was a few weeks ago I was in Toowoomba, of all places, doing a presentation. Um, and the room was full of probably about 100 people who were um, mainly retirees. Um, one probably could classify them as higher net worth individuals. Um, in the Q&A section of this um, presentation that I was there to do, I thought, okay, well, I'll just ask the people in this room if they know um, about the new Queensland land tax. Not one person. Not one person knew. And that was a few weeks ago, which was that they, uh, they quietly made it law in the end of June or around about the end of June. Um, so that was just, I was just horrified. And as soon as I left there, I rang Antonia Mercarella from the REOQ and, and told her what I had experienced, you know, um, because, so it's kind of strange because even on the, the state government's website that explains the new land tax, they're not even trying to hide the fact that there will be significant financial imposts on investors. For example, one of the um, scenarios that they have on their website um, shows an investor's land tax increasing from $2,000 per year to $8,000 per year. And I think the example with that one was someone who had a property in Queensland, but also had a property in Melbourne. Um, and therefore, that Melbourne property now became fair game uh, for them uh, to tax. So what we're talking about there is, you know, several hundred percent increases uh, to land tax. And until relatively recently, my understanding is um, that they hadn't communicated any of these changes to the people that they that it affects uh, until re like relatively recently, I think in the last week or so. Very interesting. Well, based on that example you just given, that's a 400% increase in the land tax bill. Uh, that's just for one person who might have to, like, and obviously Queensland has been on the radar of investors for many years. It has continually 
been the number one location in our Pippa Investment Sentiment Survey every year. I mean, it's been number one for so long, it's kind of a bit boring, you know. So we have had a huge influx of investors, interstate investors into Queensland over the, certainly the last five years. Um, and now those people who are not demis demisciled here in Queensland, who are actually living in Sydney and Melbourne and Darwin or where Hobart, um, are now potentially having to pay land tax um, for the properties that they own outside of Queensland. Scary. Uh, quick clarification then, is, is it the legislation retrospective uh, and therefore apply to existing interstate Queensland investment property owners or will only impact on new interstate purchases, do you know? My understanding is that it comes into effect from the 1st of January 2023. So I believe that that is whoever owns what on that date, my understanding is. I don't think it is for new uh, purchases. Um, it is for anybody, uh, look, um, we might need to clarify this. I mean, yes. I certainly haven't heard that it's retrospective. That hasn't come up in any of the conversations I've been a part of. Um, but I do know that um, it, 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 the line in the sand is the 1st of January next year. Okay, it'd be interesting to see how they... Uh roll that out and even more interesting when it comes to the administration of this because a, a Queensland state government trying to keep track of land values in another state is going to be uh, very challenging I would have thought but uh, my, my understanding Bushy is that um, their estimates were that it was going to bring in 20 a grand total of 20 million dollars extra revenue every year um, however that they haven't um, outlined uh, the administrative costs associated with uh, administering such an absurd policy. Uh, but on top of that, seemingly there's an element where they're expecting uh, interstate investors to self-report. <laughs> That's going to be fun. So uh, that one, I say. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, just sort of putting this in context then, what, what are the flow-on effects that, that this is likely to have as you see it? Well, I mean, you know, what's ridiculous about this policy yet again, and I know we've spoken about this a few times on the show, is that it's, you know, a, um, an, another financial sledgehammer on investors um, at a time when there is a critical undersupply of rental properties around the nation. And the one of the worst places in the country is Southeast Queensland. Um, so what we are likely to see is a further reduction um, in the supply of rental properties here in Queensland, which has obviously been falling for several years. We're likely to see an uptick in the number of, of, of rental properties being sold here in Queensland. And, and the argument by certain um, parts of the industry, not our industry, but the industry as a whole might be, oh, well, that'll be great because then maybe other investors might buy them or first-time buyers might buy them. Well, that's not necessarily the case. You know, often we see investors selling and it's not necessarily another investor who's buying it. It's not necessarily another first-time buyer. I mean, a lot of first-time buyers have bought new stock over the last couple of years. So that hasn't done anything to the supply. Um, so... Um, I think it is just going to make uh, the situation even worse than it currently is. And you know what? I was talking to someone recently about this, um, and I was thinking back to the negative gearing campaign that we were all involved in in 2019, right? Yeah. Peter Cleese and I at Cam in Canberra, um, which was great to have a seat at that table, you know. Um, and I was mentioning to somebody about the fact that um, the government, the state government's argument is that, you know, there's not that many people that this new land tax is going to affect. Um, 
be that as it may, whilst I don't agree with that, um, be that as it may, um, I think that you'll find that you know investors um, we, we we will we will stick up for each other, um, and we will um, you know um, have each other's back. So regardless of whether, say for example, I am not impacted by this um, land tax. Um, I'm just I'm just below the land tax threshold, um, but you know I certainly know a number of other people that are. So I just I think that the argument that it's not going to affect that many people um, is uh, immature uh, because investors as a whole we you know we we don't want to be continually hit over the head with all these additional uh, taxes. Um, and certainly at a time when many of us might be second guessing whether we want to remain an investor at all. I agree. And I, I think the unforeseen consequence here, if you if you flow it through, less demand means potentially softening prices, which also will then flow into less uh, tax into the government coffers. So uh, they might might put 20 million in for this initiative and then lose a lot more than that from the, the softening in property values across the board, uh, in addition to the uh, rental issues and the, the homelessness flow on and everything else that uh, is likely to come well, out. Stamp duty receipts, right? I exactly. Mean, number two revenue, I mean, they can't survive without stamp duty receipts. Um, so if investors stop buying here, you know, that's a huge proportion of the, of the market, um, you know, good luck. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, sort of given that scenario then, Nicola, should the new land tax be overturned or repealed? And is that even possible now that it's been legislated? Oh, certainly that would be something, that's certainly something that we are campaigning for already. Um, it will be um, a key part of um, any sort of uh, campaign we might be involved in up until the, up to the next uh, state election here in Queensland, which is not here, uh, not is not for a year or two. Um, and um, one would hope that the opposition of which we've already had discussions with would agree that, um, you know, that the, the, the Queensland land tax um, should be repealed uh, because it just is, oh, and I still struggle, you know, Bush, I still struggle. How is it even, and I'm not a lawyer, right? How is it even legal? I just, when it first came out, I'm like, well, surely they can't do that because it's, you know, and I think that they thought that other state governments would 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 be high-fiving them, but the, the New South Wales Premier, Premier came out the other day and, and called it absurd, or well, not necessarily those words, but said it was, you know, a, a ridiculous policy. Um, so I still struggle to understand from a, a, a legal point how it's even... Um, possible. Yeah, it's scary that uh, wide-ranging uh, property decisions are made by people who don't understand property, Nicola. Uh, are, there, are there any alternatives to this scheme that, that might satisfy the Queensland's needs, but without having such negative impacts on the property industry generally? I mean, clearly, I'm always for reduction of um, unnecessary taxes on, on investors, um, including this crazy one. Um, you know what? What would be nice would be, um, as I've mentioned before on the show, it would be nice if the vital role that investors have in society um, is recognised. And um, over the years, we have um, seen, like you know, um, more and more grants and things that might come out to help first-time buyers and things like that. Obviously, they've been um, siphoned off to existing property and into new for a bunch of reasons. Um, but at, at this point, when we're seeing, you know, the volume of investors uh, reducing year on year, uh, highly likely that, a, a, you know, a huge number of investors have sold up over recent years. Uh, we're seeing critically 
uh, low uh, vacancy rates around the nation, um, the supply of new property um, that may be being brought, you know, to the market by state level, uh, different levels of government, uh, that's not going to fix this problem anytime soon. Geez, it would be nice if there was some type of, uh, look, am I asking too much to ask for some type of financial incentive or just some type of incentive? And it could be a reduction in stamp duty. There's a whole plethora of things that it could be. Uh, my utopia would be that the governments, whether it's state government or federal government, finally sort of recognise that without investors in the market, um, a huge number of Australians have nowhere to live. And um, it would be, I, I just don't see like the situation that we're in now has been at least five years in the making. Um, I think that it's going to get worse uh, from here and it's and it's atrocious right now. So what can we do collaboratively, collaboratively together to um, help improve the supply of rental properties in this country? And one of those ways could be to incentivize in one way or the other, for investors to come back to the market because I tell you what a lot of them have gone and they have no intention of coming back at this point in time yeah very sad state of affairs well look uh, I really want to thank you for shedding a very informed light on the effects of these land tax changes and thanks again for joining us on the show today Nicola anytime Bushy thank you thanks Nicola well it's quite clear that the Queensland government's move to prejudice interstate investors and make them pay for the privilege is likely to lead to a raft of negative impacts on property in the Sunshine State, just when it was poised to really capitalise on all of its latent potential. To find out more on this and other current property topics, jump on pippa.asn.au to get the latest industry news, research and state market analysis. Keep watching Realty Talk, your trusted voice for all things property. Successful property investment is a game of finance. Do you have the right team and the right game plan? Realty Talk is brought to you by Know How Property. More than mortgage brokers, Bushy Martin and his team of investment architects set you up with a sustainable strategy structured to lower your costs, tax, risk and stress while increasing your capacity for growth. Know How has helped over 1,900 homeowners and investors secure more than $800 million in property wealth. So get set to live more, work less and live your legacy. Want to know how to invest in your freedom? Visit knowhowproperty.com.au Hi and welcome. Have you ever considered investing with family members? Because as they say, blood's thicker than water, but sadly, Bad business can break families apart overnight. And co-investing with family is no exception. It's got the power to thrive or equally, the power to destroy and end in tears. Now, this is particularly relevant in the current home buyers world, where many are increasingly relying on the bank of mum and dad to help fund their property purchases. So to dive into the pros and cons of investing with other members of your family, we're joined by well-known and highly renowned financial advisor, Helen Baker, who's the founder of On Your Own Two Feet. And she's also the author of two books of the same name, one on financial independence and the other focusing on divorce. So welcome back to the show, Helen. Hi, Bushy. Hi, everybody. Great to have you on board again, Helen. Uh, so diving into this subject, uh, why would you and wouldn't you invest with family? 
I think one of the big reasons is the economies of scale. You know, we look at, like you said, the bank of mum and dad, but you look at people who are single women now, which is massive, and men too, uh, whether they've chosen to be that way or they are divorced or widowed. It's like, okay, well, how do they get their own property? Or how do they buy properties to invest in? So particularly if you're single, you want to tee up with a sister or a brother or your parents, um, it's a great opportunity to do that. For a lot of people, it helps them get on the property ladder that they may not even be able to get onto if they didn't have that help. And I think the other thing that's happening in Australia that's common in other countries is we have multiple generational living now more than we ever had before. So, you know, it gives you an opportunity to all go into a house together, perhaps then you start to extend it to provide and you're building wealth through that process. Yeah, awesome. No, that's uh, spot on. So what are some of the considerations that we need to take into account when investing with family then, Helen? document 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 so the amount of times that you see problems where he said she said I thought you meant that and this was the way it was and I went in at 50 percent but then I paid for this and you paid for that so there's obviously uh, it never goes smoothly in anything not because it has to be bad just more like things change you know people get different things in their life should they get married or should they have children or should they lose their job or have a health or choose to do other investments as well so things will always change nothing sort of stays the same so you need to plan for it make sure it's very clear I always like to talk to people about what's the exit strategy so just like you would in a business you know how long do you think you want to commit to this for and it, it say it's property are you buying it with the intention that okay we're going to have this one until retirement then we're going to sell it um, or is it like okay we're going to have this and this will provide us an income stream in retirement to help support us in the future so understanding and having those conversations is really important because when it comes to that sale particularly if there's an age difference you know capital gains tax for one person while they're still working might be really bad so having those conversations up front is really important obviously if kids are involved you know there are some other issues that you need to consider about who they bring into the home how that's going to work is it purely investment or is it actually residential and how is that going to work how much risk do you take around your own investments and your own security to help them get into the market yeah, and that's some very good considerations there. And the, the sort of power dynamics uh, within a family can often get in the road of what would other be a sort of rational, even discussion. So uh, there's certainly a bit to think about there. But uh, in terms of the sorts of investments uh, that you know are appropriate for family members to invest in, what which ones would you suggest and which ones wouldn't you suggest? <laughs> So I think the ones that make the biggest sense are the big items. So the things that perhaps you want to share the risk on, such as, you know, like it could be a rental property, um, could be a commercial property, even a block of units maybe, or a development can be a business at times, but depends whether you're involved with it or not, whether, you know, how that really plays out. You might even take on things like some renovation projects, even holiday apartments with the intention maybe that you all get to use it or it could just be purely investment. Um, a lot of those areas where it's a big physical item is good. Can also be things like collectibles and art and wine if somebody in the family is really clever with those areas. But generally you see it around property is one of the biggest areas uh, where it's a big item and uh, needs to be shared or chooses to be shared for risk management. 
Yeah, no, it's a, a good spread there. So I sort of bring this all together then, Helen. What are the pros and cons of joint family investment? I think the pros around that economies of scale, again, that ability to start doing multiple things, you know, because you might have your super, but here are some other things that you can do to invest, or you may invest them through super, which is a whole other <laughs> topic in itself. But I think you can draw on the collective wisdom of people. There's also the tax benefits, you know, if you think about what structure you buy it in, whether it is a self-managed super fund or whether it's a trust. And so the ability to spread the tax perhaps across people means that the over overall wealth can possibly become bigger. Um, and also, if you don't need to sell them, but you're living off the income, you build a legacy for the whole family. The cons are probably about how much it could impact relationships, especially if something goes wrong. And sometimes it might not be between the family members or the friends who've bought together. It could be from some outsiders, the, the in-laws slash what they call the outlaws. Yes. <laughs> but it can also reduce your ability. You know, something goes wrong. We often can maybe turn to, you know, the bank of mum and dad. But if mum and dad are involved, you know, that could reduce the, the ability to go back there. Um, and it could also turn Christmas and Father's Day and whatever about uh, the discussions about those things rather than life and fun things, you know, so it becomes a lot of financial discussion over that time. Um, and I think making sure you know what the will says and making sure everybody's got their plans in place to help everybody out, make sure it falls where it needs to fall. If it doesn't, that's a really big con because that gets seriously messy. So, but, you know, I'd like to think they're more positives than there are negatives. It just needs good planning. Yeah, very good commentary. And uh, I really want to thank you for these uh, refreshing insights, Helen, and thanks for joining us again on the show today. All the best. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. Well, as you can see, it pays to go in with your eyes fully open when it comes to investing with family and make sure you have all of the hard conversations on all of the what ifs up front and early, including how everyone's going to get out rather than just get in before you invest. And if you'd like to investigate more of this with Helen, you can reach out to her via her website on your own where you can also grab copies of her great books. You're watching Realty Talk, your trusted voice for all things property. Property deductions can save you thousands of dollars each year. To make sure you maximise deductions, you need to work with the most experienced quantity surveyor in the country. BMT Tax Depreciation is the leading specialist in the industry. They've completed over 700,000 tax deduction schedules for residential investment and commercial properties Australia-wide. BMT guarantee to find double your fee in the first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation-free quote. Greetings and welcome. Now, sometimes when you're purchasing property, you mightn't have the cash that you need for the 5 to 10% deposit right there and then. So what can you do to secure the property and take it off the market without fear of losing it? Well, those of you who have your cash tied up elsewhere or may need your cash or savings for other things in the immediate term can use that deposit bond. Now, deposit bonds or deposit guarantees have been around for a long time, but they're often forgotten or misunderstood and have changed considerably over the years. So to refresh us on what deposit bonds are all about and how you can use them to your advantage, we're going to do a two-part feature here on Realty Talk to unpack them, and Grant Bailey, the Head of Partnerships at Deposit Assure, joins us to reveal the detail. So welcome to Realty Talk, Grant. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to see you, mate. Now, Grant, to start with the basics and the obvious, what is a deposit bond in very simple layman's terms? 
Well, it's used in place of a cash deposit when you commit to buying to buying a property. So it's similar to a bank guarantee, uh, which is secured or underwritten by a bank. <clears throat> However, this is an insurance type product underwritten by QBE. So the best way of explaining it is probably to give an example. If you were buying a property, let's say for $800,000, um, when you commit to buying the property, oftentimes that's called the exchange, you have to pay a cash deposit of 10% of that $800,000 or $80,000. And then when it comes time to complete on the purchase and take ownership of it, which varies in time for a month or two or a couple of months, two or three months, um, you come up with the balance of the money, which is the 720 being 800 less the 80 you've paid. However, a lot of people don't have that cash deposit at hand at the time they want to commit to buying the property for a variety of reasons. So in those instances, you can purchase the deposit bond and effectively that's handed over when you commit to buying the property to your lawyer or conveyancer, which then is provided to the vendors, uh, conveyancer or solicitor. And because you, and you pay a fee for that, but because you haven't paid any cash deposit, you then have to come up with a full purchase price at completion being the 800,000. So does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it certainly does. Well, let's sort of leverage off that a little bit because I'd, I'd love you to expand on when and in what situations and circumstances would property purchasers actually consider using a deposit bond? Sure. Well, I think um, essentially if you've got the cash, you don't need a deposit bond. However, there's a, a range of examples where people, for whatever reason, don't have the cash at hand when they want to commit to buying. So it could be, uh, for example, um, upsizers who have purchased property a number of years ago and looking to uh, upsize because new kids uh, come into the family, et cetera. Uh, and all their money is being built up through property price growth. Um, and they don't have the sufficient funds to pay the full deposit amount, um, but they're good for the purchase. So they've demonstrated that they have their loan in place and are good to purchase the property. So, um, so that's upsize as an example. Downsize is another classic example where um, empty nesters, uh, asset rich, cash poor, are looking to downsize um, out of their current property into a, uh, another property. Um, and once again, uh, all their money is tied up in the equity in the current property and they can quickly facilitate a deposit bond uh, to commit to buying the new property. Um, investors is another opportunity. Obviously, if you're wanting to purchase a property, particularly if borrowing 100%, you don't want to put down that cash deposit when you commit to buying the property at exchange. So once again, that's a, certainly a, a buyer profile that, that suits the product. And then, of course, you have first home buyers who... Um, might be getting a family pledge loan, the, the, the banker mum and dad, and um, they have their full loan approved for say 80% of the purchase price, plus their parents are guaranteeing the other 20%. However, to buy, once again, to put that deposit down, the parents might not be able to um, purchase or leverage out of their existing property to pay the deposit. So once again, first home buyers. So they're probably the four um, markets that can use it, first term buyers, upsizes, downsizes, and investors. Yeah, it's a, a pretty good coverage, so a fairly broad spectrum of opportunity. Uh, yeah. Let's sort of expand on then uh, the advantages and benefits of using a deposit bond in place, Grant. Well, I think it's, it's mainly that you can take action now to secure a property where otherwise you might not be in a position to be able to. And it's not because you... 
you know, the product's not for people that don't have the capacity to buy. So it's certainly not for speculative purposes or anything like that, but it's simply a, a cash flow issue more than anything. Um, where the person, the, the great advantage is they can secure it today and uh, but are good for the purchase uh, down the track. So someone might have, for example, exchanged on a, a property um, to sell their existing property, but they've spotted something that's going to auction um, tonight being uh, Tuesday night at an auction house and they can get along to that auction, make a bid and knowing that they're good, they've sold their existing property and they'll be able to complete on the new purchase. One of the great advantages of the product is the fact that because it's an insurance uh, related and back product, it can be facilitated very quickly. Indeed, you can, can facilitate it same day. You compare that to say a bank guarantee, which will take weeks to get in place uh, because the bank will require security to be put up either in the form of a cash deposit via a term deposit or through um, having security over an existing residential property. Whereas the deposit bond effectively is unsecured from the perspective of the purchaser doesn't have to put up any collateral to secure the product. Instead of that, a full due diligence is done on the purchaser to make sure they have the capacity to buy. So they're, they're the great advantages of it, particularly the speed at which it can be done versus other opportunities to come up with a deposit. Yeah, no, that's uh, gives us a pretty good idea. Uh, on the flip side of that, then, Grant, what are some of the? Are there any risks or downsides to using deposit bonds? Um, no, there's not really. I mean, it's it's uh, so long as you're good for the purchase. There's no there's no risk in it. Um, the um, it's a it's a product that's been around for over thirty years, um, and so it's a, you know it's a standard wording in certain contracts uh, throughout Australia. It's a standard wording to provide for the use of the deposit bond products so it's uh the uh, in terms of risk for consumers um there aren't any re really so long as they can demonstrate they have the capacity to purchase that new uh, new property yeah i guess uh, having a uh, if they're financing the purchase uh, having a financing approval in place uh would be probably necessary to to you and your team to give them that confidence so is that a uh, fair statement yeah, I mean, there's there's two ways you can qualify for a, a deposit bond, and, and and keep in mind there's two two niche products if you like. So there's the short term existing title registered title property, which we class as a short term deposit bond, which is up to six months. Um, to qualify for that, you need to either have demonstrate you have the funds to complete, and that can be through a loan approval and or the sale of an existing property or shares and things of that nature. Yep. Alternatively, if you, your loan's not fully approved, so we, if it's relying on a loan approval, we need to be it needs to be subject to valuation. Alternatively, if you haven't got the loan fully approved, we can do a, an assessment based on your income and equity in an existing property, and qualify you that way. So they're the two ways for the short-term product. For the long-term products, um, because loan approvals aren't valid for um, months or indeed years that are associated with off-plan purchasing. Yep. Uh, we do. We rely on having equity in an existing property to qualify you. So um, they're the two different ways you qualify, and it depends on the type of product and need that you're using the deposit bond for. Yeah, it makes complete sense. Well, finally, the 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 big and obvious question: uh, What does a deposit bond cost? Well, for the short term product, it's uh, in my view, it's a very reasonable price of one point three percent of the deposit amount. So if you're purchasing for uh, say half a million dollars and you need a deposit bond for 50,000, it's only $650 being 1.3% of the 50,000. And uh, so it's, uh, it's the sort of thing you, uh, uh, 
uh, don't have to think too hardly about in terms of the cost, given that it's not a product that's uh, taken any asset security from you to do that. So uh, that's the short-term product up to six months is 1.3%. Uh, the the long-term product, um, we can be issued deposit bonds up to uh, 60 months or five years. And that's often associated with new build property where the sunset clauses uh, go for an extended period, even though the project might be due to complete early. Uh, for those, uh, the cost of those, it roughly works out to be between three, three and a half percent per annum. Yep. So for example, a deposit bond for 24 months will cost around about 7% uh, for, that, for that period. But once again, if you look at comparing that to um, secured lending rates, um, you know, three and a half percent per annum, it's sort of on par. And I think as, as things um, progress into this year and next year, it'll be even more cost effective um, in, the, in the coming market. Yeah, no, that uh, makes complete sense and a, a, a good investment in securing the property and potentially having your uh, cash and savings funds uh, working harder for you elsewhere in the, in the short to medium term. Certainly. Um, I mean, if you've got, um, sorry, if, you, if you've got shares, for example, you, you might not want to sell those shares now to put into an off-the-plan property, create a tax liability now, um, and then miss, also miss out on the potential capital growth in those shares as an example. So um, there's, a, there's a myriad of advantages um, in certainly not putting down your cash deposit um, when it's an off-the-plan property as well. Yeah, very good point. Well, I uh, want to really thank you for refreshing us on the opportunities and benefits of deposit bonds, Grant, and thanks for your time on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, hey, Grant. Well, there you have it. If uh, your access to cash is tied up at the time you're purchasing a property, consider using a deposit bond to secure the contract quickly and easily by reaching out to a good mortgage broker like the Know How Property Finance Team or getting in touch direct with Deposit Assure at depositassure.com.au. You're watching Realty Talk, your trusted voice for all things property. Now, before I leave you, I just wanted to reinforce the need for you to join us by adding your weight to repeal the Queensland government's ill-conceived new land tax on interstate investors that will actually increase your land tax bill by 300 to 400% and is likely to worsen the rental crisis and homelessness through further rent rises and less properties for rent as investors sell out and invest in other states, and it will cause the Queensland economy to suffer. So this legislation needs to be repealed, and the only way to make this happen is to add your name and voice to a petition by taking a moment to jump on Google search and type in petition to reverse interstate properties land tax, then just click on the change.org link, and in less than a minute, you've added your weight to the cause. And if you're as keen as I am to see this land tax increase reversed, send a message directly to the Queensland Treasurer Cameron Vick by going to cabinet.qld.gov.au forward slash ministers portfolios forward slash Cameron Vick. And let him know that you're one of tens of thousands who believes this investor land tax is going to be bad for Queensland. Now, that brings us to the end of this week's show. Another big thanks to our guests, Nicola McDougall, Helen Baker, and Grant Bailey. And to make sure you don't miss another episode of your trusted voice in all things property, subscribe to Property Hub on your favourite podcast player, where you'll also enjoy the Get Invested podcast delivered to you each and every week. And make sure you sign up on the realty.com.au homepage to get a free copy of my award-winning book, Get Invested. And while you're there, 
make sure you check out one of Australia's most extensive range of properties for sale from over 7,000 real estate agents nationally, where you'll even find properties that aren't listed anywhere else. Thanks again to realty.com.au, BMT Tax Depreciation, Apero Marketing and DM Media for their ongoing support. I'm Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance. Remember to always get invested and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Miss something in this week's show or want to catch up on past shows? Do it anytime at realty.com.au where we connect buyers, sellers and agents differently. 